Welcome to Healing the City Podcast. In the following episode, Jessica Dennis interviews Hannah Gomez. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Jessica Dennis, and I'm here with my friend, Hannah Gomez. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm Hannah Gomez. Um, I used to be a school librarian. I'm now a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona studying children's and young adult literature. Um, so before that, before being a librarian, I went to Simmons College in Boston where I got my master's of library science and a master's in children's and young adult literature. So it's pretty much my entire like personal, professional, and academic life is books for kids and teenagers. And occasionally I'll read a book for adults and be like, well, no thanks. Well, and you're getting your PhD right now mm -hmm. in that area. Yeah, so it's what I think about all day. Um, when I manage not to think about it, I think about fitness because I'm also a fitness instructor. So. Right, that's right. Yeah, I was going to say, because your Instagram too, like it's, you just know what you're about on there. It's either about fitness or about liter literature or, which is why I wanted you on today. So I did want to say how we knew each other. Um, the first time I met you was we were volunteering for the Tucson Festival of Books and you were in the planning committee for the teen or the, U I don't even know. It's been a long time. The teen area. That's the first time I'd met you, and I just knew, like, man, this girl knows what she's talking about. She's very knowledgeable, very outspoken, um, and this was just, that was a very perfect volunteer opportunity for you. And then we had the chance to be in class together when we were in Dr. Brushin's class. Um, I think it was called Latinx Literature for Young Children or for Children and Teens or something like that. Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. So it has been a few years since we've been in class together, but you've been continuing the work. And so I just, I wanted to, I wanted to get you on here so that we can have the conversation about what you're studying, why it's important, and just all the different elements that come along with thinking about literature and books and activism as well. So the first question, if you could tell me about your background, what, what influenced you to study what you did? What, what you are generally when I'm doing these I don't want to say these types of interviews as if I'm a famous person who does them all the time but talking to people about this stuff or doing trainings I start with you know I'm biracial black and white transracially adopted by an Ashkenazi Jewish woman and a Chicano man so grew up in Tucson with all of those influences um, so I lived in Boston for two years and the Bay Area for two years but other than that I've spent you know, the majority of my three decades in Tucson. So, you know, it's hard to stay away for long. When yeah. you're <laughs> so you just, you miss the EGs and not changing your clocks. That's what I hear. A lot of people come back. They just like the sunshine and the warmth, especially if they move north, they come back. Oh yeah. I didn't know I had seasonal affective disorder until I moved to Boston. Oh wow. <laughs> Definitely don't miss that. <laughs> um, and then professionally, I mentioned, you know, I went to Simmons because I wanted to be a librarian, um, but they have a dual degree program. So I got a second master's in like history and critical theory of children's literature. Um, being a librarian was not for me, though anyone who tries to, you know, defund libraries or take credentialed librarians out of school, I will you know, come at them. 
but it just was not the right job for me. So I moved home to Tucson and um, started my PhD, which is more of a continuation of my other masters rather than my library degree. So I often say I'm a rhetoric person, you know, kind of hiding among a bunch of social scientists in the College of Education. <laughs> Are you in your comps yet for your PhD? Um, yeah, COVID kind of threw that out of whack. So I should have done my comps this past semester, but I'll do them this fall instead because everything's a mess. Um, but I should be graduating this coming May if oh things don't fall apart too much. And then you'll be Dr. Gomez. And then I'll be Dr. Gomez. Wait, so aren't you also a published author, Hannah? I am. My third book comes out ne oh, next month. You know things are crazy when like you don't even remember that you have a book. Yeah. I just think it's awesome. You like, oh yeah, you know, that's coming out next month. Yeah, you're also a published author. You focus on YA books, right? Um, that's what I'm trying to finish. My published books have all been um, what we call work for hire. So I just get contracted to write a specific book, get, you know, one check and then it's done. Um, but those have been really good practice and, um, they're all high-low novels, which are you know, high interest, low reading levels. So kids who are maybe not reading at the same level as their peers, but you don't want to tell a 12-year-old, like, go read the baby books that your first grade sister is reading. So, you know, books that look exciting to them, but are written um, more like at a third grade reading level to kind of not be so scary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my third one comes out next month. It's called Maribel versus the Volcano. So it's about the Mount St. Helens eruption of 1980. Um, so now I know lots of things about volcanoes that I never yeah. <laughs> need to know. Um, I, I specifically remembered that title. I think you posted it on Instagram because my mom's name is Maribel and I've never seen that name anywhere. And I was like, that's so cool. Like, I want to buy my mom this book. Oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really cool. And so could you, um, like, what specifically are you looking at in your when you step, I'm um, sorry, in your studies. So that's changed over time, which is humbling. Like I definitely went in and was like, I'm going to study this one thing and nobody can change my mind. And everyone's like, no, 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 that's not how grad school works. And I was like, it's how it works for me. And then lo and behold, I'm, you know, studying a totally different subject. Um, so I've been looking a lot at what for the time being I'm calling like book culture and um, book Twitter. Uh, especially Kidlit and YA Twitter are like such a fiery community. Um, so I've been looking at that and different types of book reviews. So the trade book reviews you'll see in magazines for teachers and librarians and booksellers who are purchasing um, the type of book reviews you'd see like in the New York Times, book reviews on social media. So like different ways that people review and respond to books and how um, events relating to like social justice and diversity and equity in literature have kind of affected book reviewing and how book reviewing has affected those events and the publishing industry. So, yeah, that's fascinating because I I wouldn't even think of that, but I know that there's a website that's escaping me, and maybe you maybe you know it, but it's all about reviewing social justice books, um, but it's specifically like people of color giving the review to like, to give a different perspective on than what you would hear normally from professional critics. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's really cool. Um, 
I feel like you could talk to me for hours just about that. And obviously, you're getting your you're going to study that for your PhD. So, um, yeah, don't don't get me started too much, or I will talk to you for hours. <laughs> about it. Well, I might get you started, but the other question, thinking about you, and you, you can give me a general answer, or you can go as in-depth as you want to, but the question is, why is what you're studying important for people to know and for people to think about? Uh, oh, that feels like such an existential question, because some days I'm like, why do I do this? <laughs> like, people are dying, and I'm not on Twitter talking about books with my friends who, I, you know, and I get to call it research. <laughs> Uh, so at the university, even though kind of the way I approach studying books kind of is more resembles like what you would do in an English class, I'm in the College of Education. So I teach a lot of education majors or people who want to work with, you know, kids in some way, maybe not in a classroom, but as counselors, coaches, whatever, um, which means I am like a you know, kind of a stop along the way um, before they become people who are going to directly influence kids' lives. Um, classroom teaching is definitely not my path. I have so much respect for everyone who does it. Everyone in my family is a teacher, and this is as far as I was able to rebel, apparently. Um, but I think what I am good at is at least, like, equipping teachers with things. So I try to make sure in my teaching that you know, even if I can't exactly speak to the common core with as much, you know, um, expertise as someone who spends a lot more time, you know, dealing with that, that I can teach my students a lot about books and how and why they are published and how and why other books aren't published um, so that they don't just have, you know, like a list of tons of books that they can share with their students that are, you know, hopefully worldview broadening and not harmful and all that, but that they understand that books don't appear out of thin air. Um, I think one thing about book culture and book Twitter especially is compared to, you know, when I was growing up, when we were growing up, authors aren't as anonymous as they were. I think it was a lot easier to assume that books just arrived at the Scholastic Book Fair and in your library and they weren't written by people. And now, you can see the author of the book you're reading talk on Twitter, whether it's about the book they read or showing the sourdough that they baked yesterday. <laughs> so I think it's really important to understand a bit more about who authors are, who publishers are, all that, because we have so much more access to them and because so many people wear multiple hats. I mean, there are tons of agents and editors who are also published authors and authors who work as teachers and librarians and people who work as reviewers, but are also authors themselves. I mean, I don't know that I have many friends in this world who only do one thing, so. I think it's awesome that, considering that there is a stop before people go off and influence the minds of all the students that they're gonna work with. I remember actually in that class with Dr. Brasheen, the paper that I studied was why teachers don't use more diverse books in their classrooms. I'm, and it all comes down to you teach what you know, like the books that you're introduced to and the books that you're taught with, that's what you're going to use to teach. So if you have no idea what else is out there or if no one else is teaching you, you know, how to really analyze these books that come in front of you, then, yeah, then you could easily make the mistake of, of getting a book and thinking like, oh, this is perfectly appropriate for 
a child and then you know you step into it halfway through the book because you realize some of it is just either really false or inappropriate or glosses through a lot of really heavy stuff. Yeah, definitely. You see a lot of, like, I'll try and start children's literature classes with, like, what did you enjoy as a kid? Because, yeah, there's nothing wrong with, like, enjoying what you, you know, liked when you were little or rereading a book. But, yeah, you definitely see some people in the classroom where you're like, have you read a book since 1992? <laughs> Any of them? <laughs> And it's hard, too, because I know, like, schools have no budgets. So it's not like you can tell a teacher, like, you need to buy, you know, like, a new set of books once a month every year. I mean, that's not practical, which is terrible because that, yeah, they should be able to. But, yeah, there's got to be, you know, a happy medium between, like, we only have these five books that we've had in the classroom since 1980 and we can't buy every single new book the second it comes off the presses. Like there's a lot of space in between there to, to try and update your curriculum. You helped me lead a workshop on diverse books in children's literature. And you introduced me to this infographic and it was the infographic showing diversity in children's books uh, from 2015. And, you know, spoiler alert for everyone listening is that it was not very diverse at all. Out of all the books that they looked at, the majority had a white male character uh, doing all these amazing things. And then uh, the percentages just went way low for all the other ethnicities. So they actually, they actually updated that infographic for 2018. Um, and while things have, like some percentages have improved, it's still not, it's not equal at all. You know, there's still this huge distortion knowing that children's books are not as diverse, what, what are the implications? Why does this matter? And if you could speak specifically about um, something I learned from you about accurate representation. Sure. Um, yeah, those numbers are really depressing. The Cooperative Children's Book Center puts them out every year. And for all that everyone talks about how like, oh, you know, like there's so many more diverse books out there now because you do see a lot more buzz about them. The numbers, yeah, they remain about 11% of the children's and young adult books published every year are about any person of color, like collectively all people of color versus white or, you know, inanimate or animal characters, which is usually a larger percentage than all people of color put together, so. And that's in, there's roughly 3,500 um, children's and young adult books published through traditional publishing houses in the U.S. and Canada um, combined every year. So yeah. Yeah, around 11% of that is super depressing. So one thing I always go back to that I don't think you will ever not hear from people like me is reading Sims Bishop, who is like our, our person. Um, so I want to say it was 91, sometime early 90s. She wrote an article called Mirrors, Windows, and Sliding Glass Doors, um, which now people usually um, just kind of simplify to mirrors and windows for the purposes of like talking to other people about it. But it's the idea that kids need books that are mirrors that reflect you know, their worlds back to them. Um, I would call those like affirming books, just to, if you need to get out of a metaphor for a while, affirming books. And then books that are windows that give them a glimpse into experiences that are not like the ones um, that they live every day. 
what we see based on you know those numbers and that's just one facet of diversity i mean there are so many other kinds is certain types of kids have a lot of mirror books and not a lot of window books and then most of the other kids have a lot of windows and very few mirrors I mean, there's not less than 1% of books, for example, star indigenous or native. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's like, it's so close to zero. Um, I think the only thing about those numbers that's improved that you don't see in those infographics is, I think the number of authors who come from those communities, which we would call own voices authors, I think that's increasing a bit more, which is a really positive change. Um, which goes to accuracy, um, which is not to say someone from outside a community can't know about a particular culture or community, but never going to be quite as accurate as someone who lives that experience. And even if that person is still one person, they still, you know, have a lot more access, obviously, to more of that community. Yeah, so that's one, one piece is that there's just this huge imbalance of like who gets affirmed most often and who only has to like stand on the outside looking in. So that is definitely why those numbers are really problematic and depressing. And in Bishop's article and in countless other articles, um, you know, researchers talk about how you can't be what you don't see. So kids who only see people who look like them in, you know, stereotypical roles or negative roles or just like one of three things all the time, you know, they're not not that they can't imagine. I mean, if there's one thing that kids are good at, it's imagining, but it is really hard I, to imagine the idea that you can be something different when you have all of these things keep like getting beaten into you. Not, that sounds violent, but sometimes these books can be violent to your identity. That it's, it's really hard to see yourself as different. And it's, you know, like it actually has a huge impact on emotional health. Um, when you see like every book I've read, you know, has black people as slaves and I'm black and I haven't seen a single book in, you know, all of these years of elementary school where a black kid is just like playing, playing with his friends and struggling with math, you know? Right. So they've done a lot of studies that show that, you know, kids internalize race and racist ideas very early, no matter how much adults would like to claim otherwise. And that means it affects how they see themselves and how they see their classmates. I mean, if right. you and so yeah. books are books are a tool, right? Then in that case, that if you have, because I think for some people this is a very subtle thing that they might not think about, and it's just the book, right? What does it matter? Um, but that subtle thing reinforces that image of themselves, and so like how you just said, racism is reinforced within someone and so you keep getting these cues and even from the books that you read if the, if they are reinforcing those cues then then yeah it's it's not going to help your image of yourself or your image of what's possible exactly and then it has repercussions for kids from you know white kids or other dominant identities if you want to go outside of race because then they see the kids in their class the way that they're you know seeing them in books and then it doesn't you know, and we see that with teachers too, like teachers kind of, even if they're not saying this literally, like a math teacher who thinks that, you know, only Asian and white kids are good at math is going to call on those kids a lot more. And then you have these kids who are like, why would I engage in math when my teacher is so hostile to me? And then, you know, you kind of perpetuate all of these imbalances and inequities. Um, and then 
Yeah, so that's a huge part of it. Um, I mean, they usually, I think most studies have concluded that it's around three or four that kids are picking up on, like, you know, Tommy is being treated differently in my class from Sally and mm. can't articulate why, but like, it's weird because, you know, Joey looks a lot like Tommy and is also treated differently or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something that, that we see really early on and that harms all kinds of kids, not just the kids who are being misrepresented or just poorly represented or erased. You've been listening to Healing the City podcast with Jessica Dennis. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter.